Good morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good evening to the viewing audience across the pond. I am your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, thank you so much for joining us on this lovely Saturday morning. If you're a returning subscriber, welcome back. So glad to have you here. There's nothing I enjoy more than getting a little peek to the chat, seeing friends in the chat say hi to each other makes me feel like there's a real community here at tir all of us here at tir would like to send a big thank you to all the subscribers on all platforms and patrons without you we couldn't do this for those that don't know this is the saturday free show there is no bonus champagne room it's our way of allowing you guys to get a glimpse of what goes on beyond the velvet rope here at tir we went long on Thursday with our guest, Michael Albert, having a bit of fun with the chat. And of course, we watched Rollerball last night with patrons for movie night. So I don't know how long we're going to go today. Also, our guest is in an entirely different country in a different time zone. So I'm sure it's Saturday night. Young man. I'm sure there's discos out there he has to go to do the break dancing the young people do. That's what they do still. It's a break dancing. Uh, MT and the rest of the crew are enjoying their Saturday off. So it's going to be you and I talking about some. If I didn't get canceled, if TIR didn't get canceled from the Thursday show, maybe today it's cancellation day. <laughs> With. A relentless bombing campaign, Israel, in the eyes of many in the global community, are committing a genocide against the Palestinian people. For us here in America and many of Jewish heritage, the debate over the legitimacy of the state of Israel can be a complex one. In left circles, we often hear Israel defined as a settler colony. But what exactly does that mean? And is that simple definition an accurate depiction of history, uh, of, of the history of that land, in its current conflict. Our guest today takes a deep dive into the origins of the Zionist project of Israel and juxtaposes it with some other settler colonial projects that don't get mentioned or held in the same regard as Israel. From Ralph's piece in Sublation magazine, settler colonialism and colonialism are often conflated, but there is a difference between the two. One difference is colonialism follows the logic of extraction where colonizers demand the natives, quote, work for them, whereas settler colonists want the land, not the people. They demand that the natives go away so the land will be free to be worked on by imported laborers. Zionism clearly fits the latter since they had no interest in exacting surplus value from the Arab population. They wanted as much land with as few Arabs as possible to clear the way for Jewish settlement to form a Jewish majority polity. The fudging of this distinction is partially why there is so much wrangling over calling Israel a settler colonial state. That is a quote from Ralph Leonard's piece in Sublation Magazine. Wherever you are listening or watching this show, there are links in the description. Please welcome returning guest, and my brother from another British mother, Ralph Leonard. 
What's up, Duder? I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> uh, thank- <laughs> were you, were you uh, not expecting that intro? No, I wasn't. <laughs> um, I want to know how much pushback did you get when the piece when the piece dropped? Um, for the most part, I think the predominant view was quite agreeable. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe Mo may have had one or two quibbles with it, but for the most part, they kind of broadly agreed with it or found it like thought provoking and nuanced and subtle. But you know, as with as with this topic, of course, I did get a little bit of pushback from some circles, like. Some some of it was from uh, Zionists or Israel supporters who you know felt I was I don't know, uh, you know simplifying Zionism or kind of slandering it by placing it within the settler colonial paradigm. You know? So, but for the most part, it was I think quite positive the feedback from. Um, the original Zionist slogan that you open up your piece with, uh, a land without a people for a people without a land, um, what inspired you to write the piece? Uh, I did recently see that you quote tweeted a scene from Left Forum uh, where a person, I can't remember the guy's name, said the biggest blow to capitalism will be the destruction of Israel. Uh, was this piece not in response to that? Because I think you published your piece before that clip got started to get played not not in response to that clip exactly but a challenge to that perspective um also do you see that perspective as the dominant perspective in decolonial studies mm-hmm. well the or the provenance of that came from obviously after Ottoman and you know the beginning of israel's bombardment of gaza um it you know there was a lot of discourse uh, about settler colonialism going all over the place and uh there was certain articles published in you know mainstream media that were kind of trying to push back against it like in the atlantic mm-hmm. there was a essay from a british historian um simon stayback montefiore that was mm-hmm. basically denouncing like any claim to call Israel settler colonial, colonial as basically, you know, anti-Semitic or uh, very narrow-minded, and you know, or other is published to that effect. And I wanted to sort of intervene within this argument to clarify, mm. you know, that title comes from to sort of clarify this question as to whether Israel can be classified as a settler colonial state and I wanted to do it quite minded and objective you know and without being tendentious about it um, or using settler colonial as purely a rhetorical sort of let's let's sort of analyze it concretely and historically whether Israel is a or and the Zionist movement is settler colonial and I as I argue I think yes it is I think a very reasonable person can make that argument and you know and that's where I make that distinction between 
you know, colonialism and settler colonialism, because, you know, very often these terms can be very much conflated and or like settler colonialism is sort of seen as just colonialism on steroids rather than its own separate um, thing. So, you know, I, I make the so when we talk about settler colonies, mm-hmm. we can talk about, you know, the new world, like the United States, Canada, virtually all of Latin America, all settler <laughs> colonial states in, in that they originate from a settler population that um, mass migrated over years into these lands and then created their own peace and social orders that superseded and you know tore away the native uh, societies and orders that preceded them you know so uh, so like obviously the United States was mm. built on the ruins of the various native tribes that populated these places like you know the Osage if you watched um, Killers of the Flower Moon recently, yeah. you know that that's just like the quintessential example of it. And and so when I talked about Israel, I also sort of say that Israel, at least Israel in the 1948 borders, is more like Argentina or the U.S. in that they that part of Israel was erected on was successfully erected on the ruins of the Palestinian society that preceded it hence you know that's why the Nakba happened you know the mass expulsion of 750,000 Palestinian Arabs without which the Jewish majority Israel would not come into being Mm. while the West Bank you know the settlement on the West Bank has more parallels with um, French Algeria or uh, even um, British Kenya in that you have a minority of settlers within a hostile native majority who are sponsored and protected by a mother country, i.e. Israel, you know. (laughs) Well, can you can you talk about that difference, though, between the, the West Bank and 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 that settler project because you're comparing it to Algeria and I don't know how many people watching the show right now or listening right now know kind of the history of Algeria and what happened when that settler population just up and went back to to France. Um, it's not necessarily the same. When we talk about the the early days of Israel. Yeah, I think because the West Bank and this is. This is one thing that makes Zionism a bit peculiar and why some people may be uh, hesitant to call it settler colonial because, you know, the official proclamation of the Zionist movement is these are the Jews returning to their Mm -hmm. ancestral homeland. This is, you know, so to speak, the indigenous people coming back. So how can you call it? Land back. This is land back in real time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how can you call it settler colonial if... uh, it's the indigenous people returning and you know they weren't returning to found a new Vilnius or a new Krakow like you know the American colonists 
founded into them or New York, you know, mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. they, so to speak, restored old biblical and Talmudic place names and towns. Like, so that's one reason why people kind of find it difficult. And yeah, so like the West Bank kind of fits more with, say, French Algeria because they see it, like I said, is like, you know, a minority of settlers who are mm-hmm. kind of trying to entrench themselves and rule the place in the midst of a native majority. And obviously, the, it's kind of a little bit subtle because French Algeria was seen as literally part of France. Mm-hmm. Like, it was like inseparable from France itself. So there was, so, and just like, you know, the West Bank, a lot of, you know, hardened Zionists think that that's inseparable from Eretz Israel, you know, mm-hmm. the the whole land of Israel, that this is part of the a process through which, you know, it, the Jewish homeland is made complete, so to speak. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. And obviously that comes in tandem with more dispossession, more expulsions, more um, pressure on, you know, the Palestinian Arabs in the West Bank to either kind of leave or, you know, dispossess them of land to make kind of any sense of social life impossible for them. Mm -hmm. Um, also, you know, I kind of want to bring back that, uh, that, that quote that you quote tweeted, um, the destruction of Israel is going to be the biggest blow to capitalism. Um, you don't agree with that perspective? No, because, um, Israel is just one capitalist nation state and, and, you know, I'm a kind of old fashioned Marxist about that capitalism can only be overcome internationally and trying to find one kind of scapegoat mm-hmm. as a nation state and say if we if only if only we destroyed them if only we took the <laughs> Jewish state out then ah that'll be the biggest blow to capitalism ever when you know just leaving aside like the morality the moral implications of it capitalism could just will just reconstitute itself without Israel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and and then, why do you think yeah. there's so much focus? Sorry. To, to, yeah, that's fine. Uh, why do you think there's so much focus on that relation, Israel, Palestine, and not other colonial relations that exist, especially in places like Africa? Um, I think that there are many reasons for it, because one reason is it's the Holy Land. You know, so Mm. uh, so for the two biggest religions on Earth, you know, which have Christianity and Islam, which have four billion, you know, (laughs) followers all across the world, that what goes on in that part of the world, you know, is very, very important. And so and that's very different from, say, you know, Western Sahara. With which which is very similar to Palestine in in many ways, but you know it just doesn't it just, just doesn't tap into 
you know, popular consciousness like Palestine does, you know, because mm. it, it is the Holy Land. Um, another side of it is a kind of third worldist, you know, kind of anti imperialism that kind of sees, I know, Israel as the mother load of imperialism, you know, mm-hmm. and if you took, took Israel out, you're somehow kind of dealing a mo- mortal blow to America. You know, <laughs> and and you know, and that and there's an aspect of it which is has the kind of subliminal anti-Semitism to it. You know that thinks you know Israel has this sort of titanic power behind that. It kind of has such a big influence on world affairs, uh, which I think is just you know completely wrong-headed. Um, also, you talk about kind of the the definition of the nation state that really comes to be in the post Enlightenment era. Can you, you know, get into that definition of how we see oh, yeah. the nation state today? Oh yeah, because with from in the 18th century, with the starts of the American French revolutions, that's where we see the first modern conception of the nation as we understand it today. And, you know, in the French and American revolutionary traditions, the nation is, you know, formed by the people. Sovereignty lays in the people as opposed to the king. And, you know, the nation is a political entity. It's formed through, you know, democratic Republican values so that on principle, at least, then there should be no racial, cultural, ethnic, even linguistic barriers to becoming part of the nation. And Mm. this idea of the nation was also noted for being very universalistic and historically transient, that, Mm. you know, that it was a part of a movement, a process through which a more universal form of social organization could arise. So I quote, for example, the uh, French revolutionary, who was also Prussian, Anaxis Klutz, who said that, you know, one day we will all say the world is my native land, the world is my country. You know, you can find a similar sentiment in Thomas Paine when he says, you know, my religion, my religions to do good, my only country is the world, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after the Napoleonic Wars, we see uh, another different forms of the definition of the nation. One is a more cultural form of it, which mm-hmm. is more subtle. And, you know, you see this with Mazzini, but even with Mazzini, He's kind of saw it as a stepping stone to a more universal, you know, form of organization. So he didn't really see his cultural conception of the nation as um, sort of a permanent for all time that and even that people could, you know, integrate into this nation um, where and then but then there's another form of definition from the German romantic tradition which is more racial or volkish which Mm -hmm. has a very uh, enclosed um, 
division of the nation that it's based on blood and race and uh, yeah. yeah blood and soil that's where it all comes from that you know uh, your patch of land a particular patch of land belongs inherently to a particular people because of a unique mystical ancestral you know connection to it and and even this form of nationalism is not voluntaristic like not everybody could join it because it's based on blood and if you don't join mm. if you're not part of the blood lineage you're not part of the nation and therefore you can't be part of the state even so that's that's kind of the a rough um survey of how uh the various definitions of nationalisms since the 18th century and the 19th century which i think is important when we're trying to have this kind of complex discussion right um in reading your piece i there's a there's a we joke on this show because we're not the biggest fans of afro pessimism so we just create pessimisms on this show right kind of in a joking way and we um had a running joke for a while when i think daniel bessner was on the show yeah. um, anglo pessimism right uh is there a judeo pessimism that exists in contemporary zionist or pro-israel thought uh that is kind of ingrained in the minds of israel's defenders uh, you talk in your piece of Jews being a ghost nation or eternal strangers everywhere they lived. Do they see the very existence of Palestinians as a threat to their sovereignty? Um, and did the Zionists ever have a North American plan to make the uh, Arab population more quote unquote Jewish, kind of like how Americans and Canadians kill, kill the Indian, save the man mm -hmm. type project? Um well, on the last point, they didn't have, I don't think, not really many of them really believed in trying to make the Palestinians Hebrews or mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. Because the way they kind of saw it was Eretz Israel belongs to us. That's our authentic homeland. Mm -hmm. While the Arabs, because they didn't really acknowledge that the Palestinian Arabs had their own unique kind of national connection with that land they just thought the Palestinians belonged to the broader Arab nation and their homeland was you know the Hejaz in Mecca Medina or in Damascus in Syria you know that sort of thing so that's where the whole transfer discourse comes in where you know the population transfers just move them out to where they really belong and we'll bring the Jews to where they really belong you know mm so that that was that side of it um as um was the first part of your question is there is there like a judeo pessimistic thought ah, in the idea of the you know protecting yes. the nation state of israel yes yes like you can you can tell that it's uh there is that pessimism within zionism from the, even from the very beginning because zionism comes from at, at its starting point is a critique of liberalism of li enlightenment liberalism i mean this is this is a very so this is something that's very underrated about when people try to talk about zionism because you will find some apologists 
because you say you say in the piece that it's it was there's a left a leftist zionist yeah 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 and we had um daniel mate on the show a while back who lived in israel for a while and he even admits when he was a much younger person he doesn't feel this way now right as we can change our political opinions over time that he was a bit of a zionist socialist um and again definitely has changed his opinion on what anyone's saying i'm calling you know, daniel yeah. kind of names something he said on the show yeah um but th- that's something i see thrown around a little bit but you kind of talk about it a little bit more in this piece if you want to yeah uh, I'll, I'll tell you something like the first zionist in the way we understand it wasn't theodore herzl mm-hmm. it was a guy called moses hess and if you know i'm sure people in your audience will know who moses hess is he was a socialist um a contemporary of marx and he was the guy who introduced Engels into communism in the first place and in the 1860s when he became more conservative politically he wrote this pamphlet called um rome and jerusalem the last national question where he basically makes the classic zionist case that you know that jews are a nation because so because zionism understands the jewish question as a national question not not just the nation that they're also a race that's what hess argued and because back then, you know, race and nation were kind of used as synonyms a lot, and that they were they couldn't uh, be a part of European societies. That the logic of emancipation and assimilation would be basically national suicide for this Jewish nation. Therefore. Uh, the solution to the Jewish question, the last national question, was to reconstitute this nation in its natural homeland, which is Palestine. And that was his argument. And he's often regarded as the godfather of labor Zionism, which is the left wing side of uh, the Zionist movement. <clears throat> and yeah, and he and Hess usually kind of integrated a lot of kind of racialist kind of theories when arguing for his point of view which is which when you read it now it's very very awkward you know was he eugenicist not quite i would say quite eugenicist but he kind of talks about a jewish type and like a jewish (laughs) kind of phenotype (laughs) yeah they talk a certain way and their noses have a particular length yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. They walk a bit hunched. <laughs> this sounds kind of racist, sir. Yeah, and 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 even like when he talks about the Jews returning to Palestine, he would he would use when he was talking about the land, it he used kind of usual tropes that seem very settler colonial, like empty land. We're gonna bring you know Western civilization to these backward natives mm-hmm. blah 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 that sort of thing yeah mm-hmm. mm. cuz they're savages right yeah or just backward you know but we're going to we're going to bring them to modernity yeah and i'll tell you another thing mm-hmm. that even um within this will this will link in with the liberia thing that 
if you see within black nationalists in mm-hmm. America mm-hmm. and various black thinkers, mm-hmm. you'll find a substantial strain that was very sympathetic to Zionism or took yes. inspiration from Zionism. Yes, you know, even in the even in the civil rights movement. Yeah, even um, W. B. Du Bois was a yeah. big supporter of Zionism, and he would um, he thought when the state of Israel was first established, he thought it was like one of the greatest things to ever happen in human history. Because from his, when he saw it, it was like this people for 2000 years were exiled and oppressed. And now they reconstituted themselves into a nation once again. It, you know, for a lot of people, that seemed like such an extraordinary thing. It, re- reading your piece, I was thinking about Frank Wilderson. Not that you write like Wilderson or you, you were, you know, hearkening to Wilderson. But I thought about that idea that black people are forever going to be lost in the world because we are, you know, this. I don't want to say he's I don't like and I don't really like Wilderson. This kind of trash <laughs> race. And the only thing you can get at best is like reparations but the idea of an african nation state um yeah would be like kind of the end goal to end afro-pessimistic thought well here's a nation state and that kind of happens with liberia can you talk a little bit about liberia because i don't think a lot of i don't hear too many people Mm -hmm. talk about the colonization of Liberia because I think it doesn't fit within the narrative that they want to have about colonizing because it, it tends to they want it to look a certain way right and Liberia is yeah. a little more complicated yeah because okay so the Liberia um, movement the mm-hmm. Liberian experiment was of ex-slaves um, in America in the early 19th century who wanted to with the you know, help of like some abolitionists and, you know, the American Colonization Society who wanted to return back to West Africa mm-hmm. and, you know, found their own new polity, you know, their own kind of thing. And, uh, you know, another a key person in that movement was Edward Blyden, who was, who was an ex-slave. And they went there, you know, with sponsorship from America you know, mm-hmm. uh, the British had their own version in Sierra Leone. So that was their version of it. Um, and in the in the process of them settle, settling and colonizing Liberia, they, of course, you know, went into confrontation with the native tribes of that place who did not see them as you know, saviors <laughs> yeah they didn't see them as saviors they didn't there was see no them. welcome back party there weren't banners yeah. no. <laughs> no and the irony of the funny thing about it is that many of these ex-slaves were like one or two generations you know out from mm-hmm. africa and it's so it's even more telling that that these native tribes didn't see them as like one of them that they were seen as colonizers, that mm-hmm. oppressors, you know, and that's what happened in Liberia. The American Liberians became the ruling class uh, and the ruling political class. Um, and they were the minority. And, you know, you could see, you know, even little cultural things so like the houses the American Liberians built 
were reminiscent of the old plantation houses in the south you know? <laughs> oh jesus christ <laughs> i did not know that i did not know that at all yeah <sighs> you know and you know the food they ate was not what the liberians ate it was the usual kind of american corn based diet was not while they didn't wouldn't touch like cassava cassava that like liberians would eat because I don't know that's I don't know why, but it was that sort of thing. Was, so there was a lot of like distinctions made between them and the natives, and there was also this kind of messianic Christianity, you know, civilizing mission that mm-hmm. the American Liberians had that we are the agents of Western civilization who will, you know, enlighten these natives from the top down, you know. <laughs> And yeah, and, and out of that, there was also a multi-year conflict between the American Liberians and the native tribes, mm-hmm. even, even to the point that the American Navy once intervened on the side of the American Liberians against the native tribes. You know? <laughs> so so it, it makes that uh, Michael Jackson song, Liberian Girl, sound more like an ode to uh, colonization. <laughs> 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 Think of that, did you? Uh, um, why do you say Zionism is a nationalist movement? Because that's that's um, how it started in um, the mid nineteenth century. Because I think a lot of the critical literature on Zionism just focuses on the settler colonial part. So, like, mm-hmm. if you read, say, Ilan Pape, you know. He, that's kind of what a lot of people get from it because he emphasizes the settler colonial part and mm-hmm. i think i think in order to kind of understand zionism i think you have to also see it as a national nationalist uh enterprise because it developed in tandem with the so-called jewish question mm-hmm. in europe within the 19th century and for if in case anybody doesn't know what's called the Jewish question was basically the you know the place of Jews within European societies after the French Revolution and how do you kind of should the various Jewish populations that were emancipated from the ghettos by Napoleon should they be integrated into the polity or as some people would say, you know, down the years, should they they should be ejected from Europe Europe because they don't belong here because they are Semites and Europe Europeans are racially different and all that other stuff. Um, so Zionism is an outgrowth of this discourse, and it says that it understood the Jewish question as a national question i.e that jews were a nation like the ukrainians are a nation like the poles are a nation Mm -hmm. you know and and it's and it's not a coincidence that the zionist movement arose in central and eastern europe where you had these sort of conflicting national national movements within the same place Mm -hmm. so like in poland in ukraine in you know central europe within the russian empire 
um, and 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 also Zionism was one version of Jewish nationalism because there were other Jewish nationalist movements. So, for example, you have autonomists mm-hmm. who didn't believe that Jews should go back to Palestine, but that there there is a Jewish you know identity and national kind of culture mm-hmm. that should be autonomous, but mm-hmm. that can be achieved within the you know existing kind of you know nation states you know that it does it doesn't require that Jews have to leave. They can be part of the nation, still have their, you know, uh, identity, culture, and so on. And you had territorialists who believed that the Jewish question needed a territorial solution, but it didn't have to be Palestine. So, like, that's where you had, you know, plans to settle Jews in, like, Argentina or uh, even the Uganda plan, which was... You talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Weren't they planning to sell them in Kenya at one point, too? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. In the 30s, there was a brief, because this is where I quote CLR James, and he talked about uh, there were various kind of efforts to settle Jews in, like, either Kenya or Madagascar. That was, the, that was like, <laughs> the Nazis' favored solution in the 1930s, like, dump the Jews in Madagascar. Uh, and... You know, obviously, he, I mean, CLR James critiqued all of them as basically Europe wanting to dump its Jewish problems on Africa. Mm-hmm. And he said that if this was actually, if this was actually realized that it would, it would cause more problems because for these already dispossessed and oppressed native Africans, they would come to see the Jewish settlers as just an agent of the European imperialists. And then that will cause more conflict. So, in a way, he was kind of very prescient. <laughs> well, well you know, there's no, there's nowhere for them to go after yeah. World War II, right? So, the, the, where's the land to put them? Why do you yeah. think? Why is Palestine chosen? Is it, is it just religious? Uh, well, for, well, for the Zionist movement, it was the kind of because you have to understand that. Men, most Zionists were very secular. Like most Zionists were not religious at all. And like Herzl and Moses Hess and you know Max Nordau, they were very very secular. And so the, the Palestine or Eretz Israel mm-hmm. became the candidate choice because of because you have to appeal to the wider Jewish world somehow if you're going to make it a Jewish majority. And obviously Eretz Israel has a very big place within the Jewish cultural and religious tradition, you know, and you know, and you have, because they were only going to, um, yeah, and you have to appeal to Jews somehow, and that's the way you can do it. Is And, and within that kind of ethno-nationalist imaginary of Zionism, it kind of makes sense to use Palestine because that's where, you know, the, you know, the Jewish religion came from. That's where the ancient Hebrews lived. So it kind of makes sense from, for that kind of return narrative that we are, you know, returning back and reconstituting the Hebrew nation. Mm-hmm. Um. 
how has the so you talk about in your piece um the the israel palestine uh question is is less about two different societies living together with equal rights and more about race wars yeah uh what would need to happen in your opinion for israel and palestine to move beyond that narrative or is it even possible at this point well well, at this point, it seems like they're more kind of immediate concerns, like, you know, stopping the bombing of Gaza and stopping any kind of effort to kind of to depopulate the Gazan population or like to ethnically cleanse them. Um, but yeah, I think the long term goal, because unfortunately, part of, uh, you know, the degeneration of our political and social imagination is that the Israel-Palestine conflict is increasingly seen as a kind of race war, that it's just about two kind of ethnic blobs duking it out with each other for total mastery of the land, and it's going to be a fight to the finish, you know, kill or be killed, you know, winner takes all, and and you, unfortunately, you see this kind of rhetoric from in Israel a lot, mm-hmm. from Netanyahu or those who are even well right of him, um, mm-hmm. and and I think, I mean, my kind of, I suppose, optimistic view is that it would have to take um, some kind of renewed. I don't know what you could call it, leftist or socialist or whatever movement to kind of shift the Overton window within Israel and that and Palestine and I suppose it over here to shift it from race war to I don't know a a joint struggle against you know an ethno-nationalist solution to the conflict. And you don't see that happening anytime soon? Not anytime soon, no. I think for the time being, it seems like we're focused on like immediate concerns. So mm-hmm. try to prevent like total catastrophe from being inflicted on the Palestinians. And even are and there, even that there, and even, yeah and even yeah. that seems very hard enough. It, it does. I, I would love to get your opinion on this. It feels like I grew up with an America that ran interference on anything that happened in Palestine, and also had an amazing propaganda industry that has made all Arabs and brown people seem like uh, inherent terrorists. Um, now, kind of with less censorship on images coming through social media sites, especially uh, Twitter and X, whatever you want to call it. Um, We're seeing, you know, daily these atrocities and to get people's attention, right. You show the, the way these atrocities affect uh, the innocent. So, so children and and babies. And there is kind of an across the board, hey, we should probably have a ceasefire. And yeah. even the United States at a certain like, hey, can, maybe you guys are being a little too heavy handed. And as they try to run interference, Israel as, as a state, you know, not individual people, 
are are saying, yeah, we're doing it. And yeah. we're doing it because they're just horrible terrorists and never forget uh, 10-7, which was kind of the sentiment in the U.S., if people remember, around uh, 9-11 as well. But how long can that sentiment bear fruit, especially in a, in a big election year like we have right now? What's your opinion on all that? I mean, first of all, we, we've seen that the Israeli Hasbara or propaganda just isn't as effective, nor is it as sophisticated as it once was. Like, even here in Britain, like if you watch my news or the BBC, they mm-hmm. pulled out the ambassador, Sissi Hotolevi, who is like a total right lunatic, you know, and <laughs> a Likudnik. And she comes up out with the most batshit crazy things. Like, you know, even recently that she talked about um, denazification of the Gaza Strip of <laughs> that is yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that and and also when you see this contrast between like the more sophisticated apologists in America or in mm-hmm. Britain who who will say you know try to say like well two state solutions the only way forward or you know uh, you know net or you know, uh, look at Hamas and what they've done, and you know Israel's not Israel is, is uh, you know Israel's not trying to ethnically cleanse Palestine, and then you see what comes out of the Israeli government from official government officials, where they say, oh, we we do want to clear out the Gaza Strip, or oh, we do want to dump them in the Sinai, or some of the you know, and it's just yeah, this, yeah, it's it's, it's, just it's, it's insane. It's insane. There, or, there's no covering yeah. it up, and it feels like you get this weird rehash of like, well, we must remember, you know, Nazi Germany, yeah, and they want to return to Nazi Germany. And last night in our patron-only champagne room, we, I, I didn't know anything about, and this is totally social media stuff i didn't know anything about michael rapport do you know who michael rapport is i know you're a young person yeah and you yeah, probably yeah, know higher learning <laughs> <laughs> or his greatest work that uh there's a person that's a fan of the show and he loves this movie he sent me a, a message the other day there's a person that watches the show uh prester john is their name they're a huge fan of the oliver stone directed michael rapport movie zebrahead um, he sent me this long message that said something about Rappaport should have won an Oscar for his uh, portrayal of a white man in a interracial relationship in Zebrahead. So uh, Michael Rappaport, for those that don't know, is an actor and um, huge, huge Zionist. And I don't know if you saw, he called out uh, Norm Finkelstein. <laughs> and Katie Halper and Max Blumenthal. Yeah. And uh, he says they're non Jews and like horrible for Jewish people. Have you, have you seen this? No, I haven't seen that video. But... 
Oh, he really hates Norm Finkelstein, which is funny because I feel like he just discovered who Norm Finkelstein is. (laughs) And I'll take credit for that. I'll take all the credit for that. For, you know, bringing him back to to the universe. There you go. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or like Douglas Murray when uh, he called like Norm Finkelstein of psychopath or something. Uh, Yeah, yeah, you know. Hey, and if you guys haven't read it, um, The Holocaust Industry is an amazing book uh, that Finkelstein wrote uh, some time ago. Um, so, uh, yeah, again, there's a again a guy that watches the show, huge, huge fan of uh, Michael Rappaport. I'll have to show you guys the email he wrote about um, how he just really appreciates all the work Rappaport has done in race relations. Also, his role <laughs> Remy. In higher learning when he killed Tyra Banks. Mm-hmm. Um, love to get the, these messages from fans of the show. But um, so you haven't seen any of the Michael Rappaport, Katie Helper, Beef, Max no. Blumenthal. No. You're steering clear of that. That's. <laughs> but but I I honestly do I don't watch or care about Michael Rappaport stuff and um, I didn't know that he's gone full on um, Israel apology tour and he's like interviewing um, like mothers of, of, of kids that got kidnapped October 7th and just keeps replaying this thing over and over can we not we but can that be replayed enough to keep sympathy for what's going on with Palestine, I think what's being replayed, i.e., the October seventh um, yeah. stories. Um, uh, I think in the aftermath, immediate aftermath of October seventh, I do think there was a genuine, like across the board, um, sympathy for Israel, and especially for. Israeli civilians but then Israel kind of squandered that with the you know bombardment of Gaza and when and when the pictures of like kill you know Palestinians being killed you know mm-hmm. Palestinian children being killed yeah. you know are just circulating all over social media the fact of the matter is that superseded October 7th in terms of like the, you know, the sympathies of the international, you know, world. And, Mm. and then obviously Israel kind of recognized that and wants to, because it's a bit of, there's a bit of like PR and propaganda Mm -hmm. involved in here. And that's where the whole, um, what's it called? The bearing witness film that the Israeli government has been sponsoring screenings mm-hmm. of like across the world, usually to exclusive audiences of like journalists, prominent celebrities, that sort of thing to kind of have this war of public opinion over who's, who's really like whose atrocities should be at the top of people's kind of concern. And and that does 
come a point where it's kind of obvious that the Israeli government is just very cynically kind of using this October 7th to say, to justify what they're doing in Gaza, to say mm. what we're doing in Gaza is justified because of October 7th. And, it, and it's actually in spite of many of the families of the hostages who yeah. most of them, most of them despise Netanyahu for you know allowing it to happen in the first place mm. and kind of dragging his feet on trying to get the hostages back it it even feels like they don't want the hostages back it really feels like look you can keep them as long as you want because as long as the hostages are there we're just bombing the shit out of these people and keep using yeah. that as an excuse <laughs> yeah and and you know, and we've seen, and it's and it's not just like this bombardment of Gaza. For I think for people my age, mm-hmm. like we've kind of come of age seeing multiple Israeli bombardments of Gaza. You know, 2018, 2018, yeah, 2018 yeah. yeah, 2012, yeah. and wait, this is like the fifth one, and this mm-hmm. and this one is like the biggest one so it feels like and just your lifetime this is just yeah. your sort yeah time on earth yeah. And I, you know and i remember every single one of them you know and mm-hmm. i and i even joined the protests in the 2014 one because it mm-hmm. caused a very big protest in london uh, and i joined joined um, some of them and when you this i think it feel does feel like the straw is broken with this one. Like this is like yeah. this is different to all the other ones, because because of the quantitative scale of it. Because I mean, goodness knows how many Palestinians have died. It's like twenty to thirty thousand. Most of the buildings have been bombed out. Schools, uh, you see, hospitals. Yeah. You, yeah. You see. Israel, the Israeli army doing controlled demolitions of universities and mosques. So, like, it it tells you this isn't just another one of their, to use the fiendish euphemism, mowing the lawn. Mm-hmm. This is like we're kind of uprooting the lawn, so to speak. You know, it it disgustingly feels like their own final solution in a in a real yeah. sick way. Yeah, um, like. Like it, it feels like like October seventh was like the moment of opportunity for the Israeli government to so to speak solve the Gaza problem, which has been a a thorn in their side since uh, two thousand six when they imposed the blockade after Hamas won the elections. And this you know, and they've been limited to doing periodic bombardments, and now it feels it feels like they're seizing the opportunity that October seventh provided them. Because you know, in politics, you know, there's that cliche that never let a crisis go to waste. You know, mm-hmm. so it's ob- it's obvious that it's so obvious that they're using this to to um kind of uproot the population of Gaza. Now, whether, because, you know, that's why you see a lot of, like, 
Israeli government officials trying to float various solutions like, oh, put them in the Sinai, or maybe, you know, Western governments could sort of take in Palestinian refugees, or maybe mm-hmm. the other Arab governments to, could take in the refugees. And, you know, obviously the Arab governments like Egypt and Jordan have said, that's a red line for us. It's not happening. Like, we're not, we're not going to pay for your atrocities you know <laughs> and especially since they're they are in a very vulnerable position themselves in relation to their own people because their own people know that they are you know um dealing with the israeli government you know quite amicably so they they can't sort of threaten to destabilize their own regime by be seen being seen to sort of be accomplices to israel's like ethnic cleansing of Gaza. Yeah. Hmm. How do you think and this I, is going to play out? Because unlike 9-11, mm-hmm. this isn't going to last 20 years. No. So how is this? How, how do you think this plays out? I think I th- I'm unfortunately quite pessimistic on this, and I don't want to be uh, because it seems like Israel will quote unquote win this war mm-hmm. in, in, in the sense that they could deal a, a big blow to Hamas's military capabilities and also operate like a huge proportion of the Gaza population. And the, at least they've said oh, that what they want is to at least kind of slice off a part of Gaza as their as quote unquote security zone so that basically nobody's gonna live there anymore and we control mm-hmm. it and that's sort of like their buffer zone to kind of prevent another October seventh. Mm-hmm. And so that's and I unfortunately I do think that's kind of gonna happen. As for the passive population, I don't know how that's gonna be resolved. Because whether they're gonna, whether by hook or by crook, they're gonna force them into the Sinai and live mm-hmm. in like tents in the middle of the desert, like the like you know the Sahrawi mm-hmm. refugee population in Algeria, because that's mm-hmm. that's how they live in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I just, I don't know how, because I don't know how this is gonna realize itself, but it's not going to be good unfortunately because there because there isn't the political forces out there that can kind of countervail this uh or kind of resist it like effectively or give an alternative and uh, and obviously you'll find like people in the united states who are i don't know biden like who you know, do propaganda, who do propaganda for Joe Biden, who will say, oh, you know, when, oh, look at all the hard diplomatic work the Biden administration is doing to restrain the Netanyahu government from its, like, malefeasance right after, like, you know, most of Gaza's been bombed out. Yes. (laughs) You know, it's like... (laughs) After he said publicly, "I'm, I'm I'm a Zionist. Yeah. What's wrong with Zionism, Jack? Yeah, Joe Biden is a... <sighs> and, and yeah, and you see, and you can tell how delusional 
like that administration is when because I think Biden when Netanyahu basically said I'm not going to accept a two-state solution under any circumstances recently and Biden's reaction to it was you know no I called Netanyahu and he doesn't really reject the two uh all two-state solutions because they're <laughs> just <laughs> just yeah. yours yeah they're, they're, he said that there are many two-state solutions out there on the table. It's like, this, this ain't the old the... two-state. This ain't your mom's two-state solution. This yeah. is a newfangled yeah, two-stater we got going here. And it's like, what does that even mean? <laughs> Not a goddamn thing. That's what happens when he goes off script. Um, yeah, this. It is. It is. It is a horrible thing to witness, and to feel so powerless against it. Um, there's a quote that I read today, and I'm probably going to say this person's name wrong, so correct me, Ralph. I feel like you're a smart British cat, and you probably speak French, too. Uh, Ami Césaire. Ami Césaire, yeah. yeah. Um, the poet and politician from Martinique, uh, the man that coined the negritude phrase movement. Uh, he wrote extensively about colonized and colonizers. Um, also worked with France Fanon. Um, here's the quote. A civilization that proves incapable of solving the problems it creates is a decadent civilization. A civilization that chooses to close its eyes to its most crucial problems is a sick civilization. A civilization that plays fast and loose with its principles is a dying civilization. The fact is that the so-called European civilizations, Western civilization, as it has been shaped by two centuries of bourgeois rule, is incapable of solving the two major problems to which its existence has given rise. The problem of the proletariat and the colonial problem, that Europe is unable to justify itself either before the bar of reason or before the bar of conscience. And that increasingly it takes refuge in hypocrisy, which is all the more odious because it is less and less likely to deceive. Again, his name is Ralph Leonard. The link to his article is in the description of the show. I want to thank Sune, our moderator, for keeping the chat straight. These shows can get heated. People definitely have a lot of opinions. Did you want to? Do you want to uh, plug anything on your way out, Ralph? Um, if you, uh, I've got a short piece just recently out on Unheard, which is about you know the recent film by called Poor Things, Yorgos mm-hmm. Lanthimos, mm-hmm. starring Emma Stone. Huh? No. No, I'm Sorry. old, Ralph. I'm old, and I watch uh, the same ninja movies over and over again. So, uh, starring, uh, Emma, it's starring Emma Stone, and it's basically a reworking of the Frankenstein Prometheus myth. So, with a feminist twist to it. So. Are you yelling at woke Hollywood? No, I'm not. <laughs> no, this is not yelling at wokeness. <laughs> Are you sure? Yes. Is it like is it like super woke? What? It, well, tell me about before we sign off. Mm. Tell us about this thing. Uh, basically, uh, it. I say, 
that it reinvigorates the Prometheus myth. Mm-hmm. And I and then, then I argue that we should embrace Prometheanism more. Uh, yeah. So you're a fan of the Alien prequel, is what you're telling me. <laughs> all I hear is you watching that movie and being like, you know what we need more of? Origin stories. No, nah, I'm talking about the OG, the <laughs> the, the Greek tragedy. You, you're, you can lie to the people watching the show, but what you're really trying to get in there is you wanting Prometheus in the canon of alien movies. <laughs> is that what we're getting at here? We all know it's alien aliens and alien three. And you're like, no Prometheus. <laughs> is that what you're trying to say here, Ralph? Is that what you wrote 3000 words about for unheard? No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's well, as far as alien movies goes, is the first one and the James Cameron one. So that's. Oh, you don't even acknowledge the third. <laughs> <laughs> Are you that way with Terminator movies as well? Are you like, there's only one and two. We do not acknowledge yes, three and yeah. all five other ones. Yes. I would hate to hear what you have to say about Star Wars movies. as a young man under 30 you should be a huge fan of the prequels but i feel like probably not are you not a fan (laughs) of the prequels there uh Uh, depends which prequels the star wars prequels oh you're Uh, only only rogue one the the, the, (laughs) one two and three don't exist only rogue one and star wars empire (laughs) jedi We had such hope for you. And then you go and just ruin it all with loving Prometheus and, you know, hating Revenge of the Sith, (laughs) not allowing Alien vs. Predator and Alien Canon. It's too much, dude. Someone says, don't forget Andor. I've never seen Andor. I canceled my Disney Plus subscription. So you guys are going to have to tell me all about shit like that because I am not going to watch it. (laughs) I I, I can't afford to be entertained anymore. (laughs) That's where I'm at with my life. Entertainment is way too expensive. Uh, Thank you guys for checking out the show today. Please hit the like button on your way out. If you're a new viewer, hit subscribe and the notification button. If you're listening on Apple, hit subscribe and get access to the champagne room. If you enjoy what we've done here and have the means and feel so inclined, become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. You can access the champagne rooms past and present. Join us for movie night, which I thought was fun. Rollerball is a good-ass movie. You know, you're telling me about a, a new movie with a person and in the champagne room. We're talking about the fact that I have a date I'm going on in February. Mm-hmm. Is this movie a good date night film? <laughs> it's well, uh, uh, it's very graphic. I'll put it like that. Oh, maybe not a good date night film. What's it? <laughs> It'll be a first. It'll be a first date. Not a first so date. So it'll be a first. It'll be a first date. It's, so it's, if I, 
It's too yeah. explicit for a first date. Too explicit. too explicit for a first. Okay, so before we go, I do want to I do want to get this out of you as a as a attractive young man mm-hmm. in the UK when you're on a date. What is your first date movie? Do you have a go to movie? Do you agree upon something? What do you do? We're gonna put the spotlight on you. Uh, she gets the first pick. She has to pick. The oh. Okay. You're going to go that route? You're going to go <laughs> fucking sensitive guy because you're on the left show thing? I don't believe that, Ralph. I think you put your foot down. And you're like, this is what we're going to watch, goddammit. Battle of Algiers. <laughs> <laughs> or oh, uh, Z. 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 Oh, that's a good one. Log. So so you just you just defer. Yeah, first one. The first one. First one? Okay. What if they want to watch, like, The Notebook? Do you suck it up and say, oh, I love this? Or do you do you make a face that says, maybe not? What do you do? Or do you just stay stoic? Mm-hmm. I try to steer her away from The Notebook. <laughs> also, why are you dating a 40-year-old woman? <laughs> How funny it would it be if Ralph was older? Ralph was like 20, 26? Yeah. <laughs> I want to watch the notebook. I want to watch the what? The fuck is wrong with you, Grandma? <laughs> I think that's what my dad took my mom to see on their first date. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. If you have any movie suggestions, that aren't Prester John's movie suggestions because I will not watch Zebrahead again, regardless <laughs> of how much you love Michael Rappaport and that iconic scene. Can you take that black and white like this? Like this? <laughs> not going to oh. watch Zebrahead, man. Well, it's maybe, a fir- maybe a first date movie, Jungle Fever. Ooh, that is also not a first date movie. Depending on who you're going out with. If you're going out with a white woman, do you show Jungle Fever as a first date? (laughs) (laughs) And act like you've never seen it. Like, I heard this Spike Lee movie is really good. And you watch it. (gasps) That would be hilarious. Um, So there you have it, people. Ralph Leonard says, if you are going on an interracial date, definitely. Spike Lee movie is a good first date movie. Thank you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Joining us. Um, we'll be back Tuesday to talk about Argentina and their nationalist roots. Have a good rest of your weekend and we are out.